I tell you what, I love this place. You know, it's easy when you uh, are in a place for a certain amount of time to grow familiar with what you have and maybe not appreciate it like you could or should. You need to appreciate this place. Um, I'm not going to go into all that what I'm doing, but I'm working with as a pastor at a large church and also a, a, uh, a, a church plant and also working with a network of eight other churches. And I just wish they could get a little bit of what Riverside has. I tell you, you got, I mean, that was awesome. I love being here. I love you people. And I believe that God has something great for us tonight. Um, this is what I would ask you right now. Forget about that it's Sunday night. Forget about all the commotion. Forget about one thing. What I want from you tonight is to have a very, very high expectation. Because we serve a God who is high and lifted up. We see, serve a mighty, mighty God. And any time that he is in the house, our expectations should be way up here. So believe tonight that God is going to manifest himself to you, that God is going to reveal himself, show himself to you in a way that you have not seen him to this point. So God, we ask that of you. Only you can do it, God. Only you can truly bring that revelation. Only you can open the eyes of our heart to see you as you are, God, and to transform us. So God, would you do it tonight? Would you pull the blinders off? Would you shine brightly in this place? May we truly see you as the great I am that you are, God. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to start with Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It reads like this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I dwell, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has purged your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord himself saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. The scriptures say that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. What was the significance of this fact? What was the importance of it? Why was it mentioned? What was its significance? I think if we begin to dissect the life and the reign of Uzziah, we will understand why 
this statement is pertinent, why this timing is critical. In 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26, we are given an account of Uzziah's reign. There are two things that immediately will jump out you, at you about Uzziah's reign. The first thing that you will see is it was long, and the second is that it was prosperous. It was a time of financial prosperity, military superiority. The king and the nation itself were held in great prominence. Their fame went throughout all the known world. It was a time when there was great construction going on. It was a time when there was great cultural advances. Just about in every way that you can look at this long and extended period of prosperity, you could say that this was an amazing run. It was an amazing run of years. So this, of course, begs the question, what was the secret to this unprecedented prosperity and this stability? Surely there are some great political, military, social, and economic formulas that we can glean from Uzziah's reign. Well, as you look at it, amazingly enough, there is really only one. And we find this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 5, and it says this, speaking of Uzziah. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. See, here was a 16-year-old boy who understood that he didn't have what it takes. He didn't have the understanding. He didn't have what it would take for him to lead a mighty nation. But instead of looking to the wisest men of the days, the business leaders, the military leaders, the social leaders, he looked to a man who understood the fear of God. He looked for someone who would show him the ways of the Lord, and it made all the difference. Now let me say this, that there is no greater place that we can ever be in but in that place of humility, that place where we understand that, you know what, we don't have the goods. We don't have what it takes to do what we're called to do or what we need to go through. But there is a God who is high and lifted up. That there is a God who has all wisdom and all power and all might. And if we will choose him, if we will seek him, it will make all the difference. But I wish I could tell you that this was the way that the story ended, that the whole story went this way. But unfortunately, the end for Uzziah and for the children of Judah was not as strong as the beginning. See, as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, as long as Uzziah saw God lifted up, saw that God was the true king, as long as Uzziah saw that his strength and his hope was in the Lord, God made him to prosper. But somewhere along the way, Uzziah's vision and the nation of Judah's vision became cloudy. Listen to 2 Chronicles 2, 26 through in verse 15. In his name, talking about Uzziah, spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped. That's the point, right? 
for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. See, they lost sight of the fact that it was God that had gloriously helped them. They now began to see themselves as prominent. They now began to put their hope in the strength, in the provision that they had, rather than the one who provided it in the first place. But see, I want to take this opportunity to make an important distinction between living in prosperity and living off prosperity. See, when we're living in prosperity, when we're living in the blessing of God, the foundation of this prosperity is in our souls. See, that's why John, in in 3 John verse 2, prays this. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health. What? Just as your soul prospers. See, when we see God high and lifted up, when our trust is fully in Him, There is a rest. There is an inward peace. Isaiah chapter 26 calls it a perfect peace. There is a contentment, a security, a strength, an inward knowledge that we know, that we know, that we know that in God we have everything that we will ever need. This is biblical prosperity. This is a soul that is prospering. Now, see, the results of living in prosperity oftentimes will lead to a measure of earthly wealth. That inward prosperity, when we're living in the blessing of God, when our souls are prospering, many times it will be accompanied by some degree of wealth, some degree of promotion, other things of outward blessing. We may get a godly wife or or a godly husband, which are from the Lord. We may see God bless us with a family. There are all kinds of things that God can bring when we're walking in prosperity. But realize this, that these outward blessings, these outward signs can remain long after our souls have ceased to prosper. Long after we've lost our connection with God, our intimacy with God, the true blessing of God. See, outwardly, everything may appear the same. It may look like we're still blessed, but inwardly, we know that our souls have become barren. And this is what happened to Uzziah and to the children of Judah. See, for years, maybe for decades... They continued to live outwardly in what appeared like the blessing of God, but the foundation had long since given way. Their souls had long since prospered. See, they had stopped serving a God and worshiping a God that was high and lifted up and had began to put their trust in an earthly king and in an earthly kingdom. See, they had sold their soul, and what they had sold their soul for was about to be shaken. See, this is why for us, John prayed that our souls would prosper. Because he knew that no matter how much stuff, no matter how much blessing that we would have, if our soul wasn't prospering, it says Jesus said to the church in Revelations, we are blind 
poor, miserable, and naked. Because see, you can add a lot to a soul that is prospering, but nothing can replace it. Nothing can replace it. See, today I don't want us to look and examine what it looks like on the outside. How much money we have in our bank accounts. What our house is like. What things are happening around us. What I want us to do is take a long, hard look in the mirror and just be honest with ourselves and say, is our soul prospering? Or have we begun to put our faith and our trust in all the things that ultimately, when they are shaken, are sinking sand and will not support us? See, and I don't say this in, in, in an area of, of judgment. I say this as from experience. And from a person, see, there have been times in my life, and I'm sure others can testify, when I didn't have much outwardly. But inwardly, my soul was blessed. My soul was prospering. There was a joy. There was a depth of peace. There was a life inside of me that I wouldn't trade for all the money in the world. But I can tell you honestly that there have also been times when things looked great on the outside. When it looked like everything was blessing. Everything was going great. But inside, I was dry and I was barren. And I can tell you one thing, I will have a life with nothing on the outside and the blessing and prosperity of God in my soul than all the riches or all the power or position you could ever give. See, so this is the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 6. We have a nation, a people who had become enamored, bewitched by the stability, the financial, cultural, and military prominence that they had enjoyed. But now, all of a sudden, it was beginning to crumble. And it was the year that King Uzziah died. Now their leader, now the one they had looked to, now the one that they saw as the one who had led them into that prosperity was dead. Everything around them was beginning to shake, and they realized that the foundation that they had built their life on was nothing but sinking sand. See, and it was in the midst of this turmoil, the confusion, the fear about the future, that Isaiah saw this vision that put everything in perspective for him. And it's what I pray that each one of us will see today. And that is, he says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. I didn't hear about him. Somebody didn't tell me about him. I didn't hear talk. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his glory filled the temple. See, listen, I am convinced that if we live long enough, every one of us personally, every one of us as a family, every one of us, I believe, even as a nation, will have a King Uzziah died moment. That everything that we saw as secure and solid, everything we thought we knew, is going to be shaken. And what will make the difference in those times, whether we thrive, whether we survive, or whether we get absolutely crushed, is what is it that we see as high and lifted up? Where have we placed our trust? Where is our soul anchored? 
Because if our soul is not anchored in a God who is high and lifted up, when the storm comes, when the persecution comes, when the shaking comes, we will be crushed. But listen to this. If our soul is anchored in a God who is high and lifted up, if our soul, our trust, our whole dependence is on the great I am, it will not matter what storm comes. It will not matter what shaking comes. You will stand. Your foundation will hold sure. See, and I can't think of a greater testimony or an example of this than what I saw in my own family and from my own parents. You know, my parents, as long as I knew them growing up, they were people who sought the Lord. Perfect? No. But they sought the Lord. There was never a time I didn't, I didn't see that their dependence was on God, that they prayed to Him daily, that they sought His Word. But there came a time when all that was going to be tested. In high school, I was the third son of five, the middle son. And one summer, the three of us, my two older brothers and I, we were working in the family business. And as we left the family business to come home one afternoon, and we drove up to a stop sign at the, at the, at the cross of a country highway, a country road, and my brother turned the car to go right. I looked to, to the left for a moment and I saw something that he obviously did not see, which was a semi-truck going 60 miles an hour down the road. That semi smashed into the back of our car, sent my head spinning just enough time to look that we were now in the other lane and here was another semi-truck truck that was going to strike us head on. Our car was crushed like an accordion. I didn't remember much until really later that night when I woke up in the intensive care unit and my parents were there. And of course, my first question is, how are my brothers? And I knew right then where their trust was, where their faith was as they looked at me and said, your brothers have gone to be with Jesus. And I'm sure little did they know that that night when they left that hospital, that they were going to go home to their house, and at their house would be waiting a group of troubled teenagers, confused, frustrated, questioning, how could this happen? What could this happen? And I can only imagine now being a parent myself and having just gone through the hardest day of my life, and I see at my home, I just want to go home. I just want to go be but there's there people there who need Jesus. They need a touch. They're lost and confused. So instead of looking at my own hurt, my own need, they preached Jesus. And they saw many of these teenagers come to know Jesus and to go on and be disciple. They used the funeral as an opportunity for what? Not to, not to look at their own pain, but to glorify Jesus and to draw people to Jesus. You know, one of the things that sticks out in my mind, and again, that just seals this in my heart, is I was in traction in the hospital for six weeks after the accident, and 
I had people who would come by my, my hospital room and they would say, how could God do this? How could he let this happen? You would think that that might be my parents, but no, my dad came every day with the word of God telling me, Rick, we got to trust God. We got to put our hope in God. Why? Because there is a God who is high and lifted up. And today, many, many years later, their soul was prospering then and their soul is still prospering today. Not because they're so great, but because they know the great I am and that there is nothing, no matter how hard, no matter how fierce, that can rock our foundation if it is built upon the God who is high and lifted up. You know, I mean, I... It's just God with what John brought about the shaking and about what's coming. Because when it it all boils down to, this is what we're talking about. You either know the God that is high and lifted up and are rooted in him, or we'll never make it. And see, sometimes trials, it's not only that which proves our faith. Sometimes in our trials, sometimes in our our darkest hours, that is when the heavens open up and we begin to see God high and lifted up in a way that we've never seen him before. Trials are the greatest opportunity for God to show you just how strong he is. I think back to about five years ago now when my son Michael was diagnosed with cancer and we immediately took Michael down to St. Jude, and, um, you know, the hope was we'll, we'll get him down to St. Jude, and he'll have surgery, and the cancer will be gone, and everything will be all right. But we took Michael down there, and we, we had the surgery, and it ended up where Susan, my wife, had to stay down there for about two months. And I would go back from Peoria to to Memphis and back and forth, and, and my, but my wife was there pretty much the whole time. And, you know, continuing to pray, continuing to trust God. But after about two months when the doctors realized that they didn't get all the cancer, that the cancer had spread to his lungs, and they looked at Susan and they told her, we just have to be honest with you, there is, all, there is nothing more that we can do. And to be honest with you, he's probably only going to live about two years. This was too much for Susan. See, people will tell you at times, and and it's just flat out wrong, that God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than he can handle. But at this point, it was more than what Susan could handle. So she, she describes it and she'll tell you there was like a dark cloud hanging over her soul and she just had to go find God. She just had to go be with Jesus. And so she asked the nurses if she would stay, if they would stay with Michael while she went out. And she will tell you she went out into her car weeping in this darkness and she turned on the radio and, and began to play praise music and she looked up to the heavens and she cried out, God I love you, I trust you, and I praise you. 
And she will tell you that it was as if heaven opened up and she saw God high and lifted up. It didn't change a thing about what was going on, but now she knew that there was absolutely nothing that the God that she serves could not handle. And today we stand here five years later, and I want to tell you that Michael has never been stronger. We don't, know what the whole, we don't know what the future will hold. But we do know that there is one that is mightier than doctors. There is one who's mightier than cancer. There is mightier than anything that can ever come against you. And that is the God that is high and lifted up. We go on to see in this passage that the angels as they're ministering before this mighty God, cry out, holy, holy, holy. We see that all heaven shook with the enormity of these words. But what does it mean? What does it mean, holy? See, if you ask most people, it would be, well, Holy is just some religious word. It's some churchy word. It's something that the definition is you just can't have fun. Well, let me tell you something. There is nothing that could be farther from the truth. People look at God and they look at holy and it's as if we think, and I think the church has even been guilty of teaching that this is the thing that keeps God distant from us. It's, it's the thing that makes him unrelatable, the thing we just can't, up, makes him unapproachable. And once again, nothing can be farther from the truth. If we understand what holy is, it is the thing that makes God the most desirable. It is the thing, when we truly understand what it means that God is holy, we can't stay away from so what does it mean? It does mean that he is separate. It means that he is set apart. But in what way? In this way. God is like no one or nothing else. He is in a league by himself. In any attribute that is worth having, he is beyond compare. Anything that you can name, whatever it is, if it is good, God is on a plane up here and everything else is down here. There is no love like his love. It's a holy love. There is no power like his power. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no justice. There is simply nothing like our God. He is holy. No, let me say it again. He is holy, holy, holy. He is like nothing else. And see, here's what we need to understand. That the things that will truly satisfy our soul the things that will cause us to live in prosperity are only the things which are holy. It's only the stuff that is in God's arsenal that can satisfy us. See, the key to no longer living frustrated, dissatisfied lives is realizing that you don't need more of the same old stuff. 
It doesn't matter how much you add to it. What you need is something altogether different, altogether better. We need some holy in our lives. See, the shame of it is all, all is that so many can testify that having tried everything we know to try, having tasted everything we know to taste, having done everything that we know to do, having accomplished everything that we know how to accomplish, it still does not satisfy. But we're not willing, listen to this, to put aside the pursuit of the unholy for that which is holy. We say, wait a minute, Rick. Uh, what I'm pursuing, it may not be God, but it's not unholy. Really? Think about it. So if holy means like nothing else, unholy means just like everything else. It's common. See, it doesn't matter how big the house is, it's still a house, and it's not going to satisfy you. It doesn't matter if it's one dollar or a million, it's still money, and it's not going to satisfy you. And don't be offended, but ask Solomon, it doesn't matter if it's one woman or a thousand women. It's still not going to satisfy you. It's just common. It's just ordinary. What we need is something much better. We need something that's holy. And the only place you're going to find the holy is in the God that is high and lifted up. See, now, does that make everything that's not God evil? No, it just makes it unsatisfying. See, it's crazy how stubborn we are. We live our whole lives thinking we're going to get to that next thing. We haven't found it yet. But I'm sure the thing just around the corner is what is going to satisfy me. Well, let me make you a promise. That next thing, the better boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, the new job, the new house, it is going to be just like everything else. People, we got to real. I mean, when it comes to going after God, listen, we all down deep long and know that there has to be something better, right? Everybody knows that. That's why we keep seeking and we keep seeking and we keep seeking. And I tell you, we ought to have learned by now, you're not going to find it outside of God himself. See, because there is something that is truly better. There is a joy that is beyond all earthly pleasure. Hear me. There is a joy. There is a joy. There is something that is going to fill your heart, that's going to fill you to overflowing, that's going to make you dance, that's going to make you jump. There is a joy beyond all pleasure. There is a peace beyond all understanding. There is a place of peace where your soul can be at rest no matter what is going on around you. Listen to this. There is a love that is unconditional, that is beyond compare. But you are going to find it down here. You aren't going to find it in the unholy. You're going to find it in the one who is holy, the one who is like nothing else. See, we don't believe, we don't believe that our God is the great I am. We sing about it. 
But we still look everywhere else but to him. Oh, God's desire is for us to know him. Experience him. There is an inevitable result when our eyes see the Lord high and lifted up. When we don't just hear about it, but our eyes are open to who God really is. And that is we become undone. See, the reason that the world isn't undone by God, and unfortunately so many in the church maybe are not even undone by God, are not awed by God, there's only one explanation is that we haven't seen him as he is. Because when we see him as he is, that's our only response. To be made speechless, to be wrecked. Now people will say, wait a minute now, this sounds a bit scary. Here we go again, talking about Fear of God. Well, what about, I mean, God is love. I'm, I don't want to hear about this fear, but he, get me this. Get me on this. Just like everything else about God, his fear is a holy fear. It's like nothing else. It's like nothing else. Well, what makes God's fear different? See, his glory and his power may undo you, but at the same time, his grace will heal you. See, look at here in Isaiah. God's glory may knock you down, but his grace will always pick you up. Look at Isaiah again here in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. But listen to what the Lord does. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. See, God's glory doesn't want to wreck us to destroy us. He wants his glory to wreck us so he can heal us. See, God's desire is not to bring us low for any other reason other than so he can raise us up. See, we will never know God's grace. We will never understand it. We will never be able to receive it until we know his infinite glory first. It's only a God of such infinite glory that can have such an infinite grace. It's only a God of such infinite glory that can provide healing to a broken heart. Who can wipe away every sin, can wipe away every stain, can wipe away every shame from our lives. It's only a God that is that high and lifted up that can also be that gracious to us. That is God's ultimately, his ultimate desire for us. See, it's so amazing, and I love it. 
Once we experience God's grace, like Isaiah, there is no possible way, if we have truly experienced God's grace, that we can be silenced about it. We have to say, God, here am I, send me. See, I think if there, there's only one explanation if the church is not, doesn't have a louder voice, does not have a greater voice to testify of God and his glory and of the great I am. And that's because we haven't experienced enough of his grace. Well, today, we need to experience his grace. There's another beautiful thing about being undone by God, and I'm moving quickly here. Once you have been truly undone by God, there is nothing or no one that will ever be able to undo you again. See, it's amazing how easily we're intimidated and shaken. People intimidate us. Situations intimidate us. But here's what I've seen with those who have been undone by God. Nothing intimidates them. Why? The reason we're intimidated is because we believe someone is better than us or there's some power that is over us or in some way superior to us. But once we have seen God for who he is, that he is high and lifted up, and that there is nothing that can stand against him, what situation, what person would ever cause us to be afraid again? If God be for us, who can possibly be against us? See, once we fear God, once we understand who he is, we realize again that every person no matter what position they hold, no matter how beautiful they are, no matter how much power we may think they have, no matter how fierce the situation, get this, it's all common. It's all common. But there is an uncommon God who is holy, who is high and lifted up. And when he is our trust, we will say with David in Psalms 21, 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If the worship band will begin to come up. I want to close by talking about one other thing that every person I believe in this room needs to experience. See, there are a lot of things that, about God that will undo us. I mean, when we see God in his power, when we see his infinite power and might, it will undo us. When we receive his grace, it will undo us. But there is absolutely nothing that will undo you, that will leave you speechless, breathless, like God's love. It is a love that can heal every hurt. No matter how deep those scars are, no matter what pain and suffering you've gone through, there is a love that is like nothing else. 
And there is not a person in this place tonight that God does not want to awe you right now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when you get out of here. Right now with his love. If you will just see him as the one who is high and lifted up. That he is the one who has such a love. See, people look all throughout this world in so many unholy places for love. And the best we get is some conditional, self-serving kind of love. But today, God wants to awe you with his love. Maybe you've never experienced what it's like to be forgiven. To have your sins gone. To have the pains and the hurt of the past dealt with. Today, there's a God in this place who can forgive every sin, heal every hurt, and can raise you up. God gives grace, the Bible says, to the humble. So as we worship, we're going to sing that song again, The Great I Am. And just ask God to open all of our eyes in a new way. To not just sing about the great I am, but experience the great I am in your life. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you need. I don't know if your soul is barren because a once trusted God, but now your soul is no longer prospering. And you're saying, God, I'm, I'm tired of everything else. I'm tired of looking for satisfaction and peace and joy and all these other things. I need my soul to prosper. Right now, the God who is the great I am can begin to prosper your soul once again. If it's his love, it's his grace, whatever you need, God has the goods. So let's stand and let's worship him and receive from this God who is high and lifted up.